Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. In our previous conversation with Matt Cohun, the author of Egress on Morning Melancholy and Mark Fisher, and editor of Fisher's final lectures, Post-Capitalist Desire, we ran through the events and processes that gave shape to his thought over two decades. We spoke of the CCRU, his contemporary thinkers, his diagnosis of the cultural and political stance still we are in, and the repercussions of his passing on his community. In the following episode, we use One Otrix Point Never as a starting point to examine cultural practices that re-energize imagination and examine how different temporalities affect our collective psyche. We also talk about depression as illness and metaphor, and muse on contemporary politics and the ideas that advance or block their potential. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I am Yanis Oreswa Dimitriou, recording and editing by Stefan Kostadinidis. Matt Cohun, welcome back to the Archipelago. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be back. So you've teased us 10,000 words on One Other Exponent Point Never's uh, latest album on your blog. Uh, can you tell us what they will contain? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's become a bit of a pet project that is now far beyond my control. Um, yeah, I've really been enjoying his uh, latest album. Um, and I feel like there's... There's something about this record that feels like something of a capstone for the past sort of decade or so. Um, I think that the, the music of One of Tricks Point Never has sort of begun as uh, sort of the father of Vaporwave, uh, lots of sampling of um, uh, sort of uh, commercials and strange radio jingles and and other sort of very well-known pop songs. And then it feels like the project's taken very strange turns since then that I've must admit, I've not always followed with earnest, but the, the new record seems to sort of tie all these things together that um, has for me anyway, clarified that musical project as, as 
something of a of a beacon for um how to do pop cultural engagement properly in the 21st century um because it's interesting that that as a musical project has um outlasted a lot of uh sort of other contemporary projects that have come and gone and had their moment in the sun and maybe become memes or something similar and then uh faded away but um one of tricks point never keeps coming back and uh yeah i'm so i've been i've been ruminating on why that is and maybe what kind of response is is responsible even for um yeah, that strange longevity, despite all the contradictions. You know, so it's, it's, I guess that's it. It's a project that's full of contradictions, but it hasn't succumbed to any of them yet. Yeah. And that's quite rare. It's strange, though, that it seems like uh, Chuck Person's Echo Jams, which uh, I think kicked off the whole uh, cho- chopped and screwed vaporwave uh, uh, hauntology movement, you know, you remember in the late in the... Uh, in the previous decade, it seems very far, far behind. It's very different from what he does now. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, but I, but I wonder if it is so different. I think that's partly it. That um, there's this. It's, it's. I found this old. I mean, I guess it's yeah. It's, uh, I found this old review, sort of a review, maybe more of a column in um, in Wire magazine that Mark Fisher had written about um, One Tricks Point Never and um, Leland Kirby's VVM project. Um, and Mark describes that they both released songs that sampled the um, the Lady in Red by Christa Berg, and uh, Mark describes them both as um, it's not a kind of uh, postmodern pastiche that's just kind of taking a motif and not really doing anything interesting with it, just kind of not not just degrading it for the sake of degrading it, but um, kind of having the i think mark says that it's the it retains the specificity of the object that's being dealt with whether that's a song or something else um and takes sort of the the most positive qualities of that entity and then updates them through sort of um contemporary um uh technologies or or lenses or perspectives whatever you want to call it um and yeah, I feel like that the, the the project's kind of still doing that. I feel like this new album, this the Magic One of Tricks Point Never, is doing what 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 sort of Echo Jams did with these old commercials is kind of doing it again with just radio as like this whole medium. So it's this the despite how much the project's changed and how sort of cleaner and more sort of well produced it sounds in the kind of technical sense, I feel like there's this same um uh, what's the word? Like a there's the same drive, the same the same concerns are there, but they've kind of been updated with each record. And um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting that that I think especially when a lot of the because a lot of music that was the, like the Echo Jams project and a lot of that the, that kind of early vaporwave music was so um, it was it was so of its time and then people kind of stopped taking it so seriously or caring about it so much. Um, yeah. And the fact that I think he brings a lot of those concerns back to the fore in a whole, you know, at a whole new level of visibility is, um, 
I think demonstrates that those questions never went away, and they definitely haven't been resolved. You know, I'm not. I, it's funny that you that you say that it's uh, it's of its time because I was thinking about C-Punk, which was an another contemporary, uh, you know, uh, genre that uh, emerged in the end of the previous decade. Uh, yes. and I'm thinking that this actually it was. Kind of a, a nostalgia for the uh, the first days of the internet, you know. Uh, it it actually it was very close to that era. It was very close to Windows ninety five or Windows ninety eight. I mean, it was just ten mm. years apart. Uh, but it was it it expressed this culture as something very different and far, as a, as an aesthetic that is pretty the 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 very distant past from that of the smartphone, from the present of the smartphone at the time. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the tension that I find really fascinating because it's not there. There is this harking back to something that's distant, but it's almost as if that's you know it's a it's a harking back from maybe a generation that didn't see it firsthand. So that I don't I think a lot of people listen to that music and and hear a certain melancholy or nostalgia, but I think instead what I always hear is this um, it's just the weirdness of um, of like a, a Of, of 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 encountering a kind of, a medium or a form of technology that is kind of fallen out of, I guess what Foucault might call the order of things that isn't that we kind of know what it means and it has a certain symbology. It's a relic, I guess, in in, in the kind of literal sense that it's it's, it's, it's an abandoned it's abandoned, but it has sort of a spiritual potency. <laughs> um, and I think yeah, that it's. I mean, it makes me think of. Um, I guess that that it's it's often difficult to pinpoint what the difference is, but I feel like if we look at a record like um, William Basinski's "The Disintegration Loops," is it the disintegration tapes? Um, that is very much sort of uh, famous. There's a mythology around it for the kind of the loss of innocence and the sort of depre- the, the the depression that followed 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of shows that. Um, It's it's it, that's a hauntological record in the in the sort of the the very Deridian sense where it's not a it's 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 a it's not a ghost in itself but it's a it's kind of a recording that prefigures the ghost that recording will come it, it's if it's to say like you're recording this process of disintegration and what you're left with is nothing so what so the record that is new isn't nothing <laughs> it's like the prefiguring of the void that is on the horizon yeah. and then but but you kind of linger in that purgatorial limbo stasis i, I think um, i remember that's very not, more oh, sorry 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 go no on. go ahead No, I was saying I, I remember this old feature in the Quietus. I think uh, where it was talking about self-destroying music and had the example of the uh, disintegration loops. Uh, and I'm trying to think: are, are we are we listening to the, to a, what is the joy of listening to a medium being uh, a medium in self-destruct? Essentially, <laughs> I think that's it. I think that maybe for someone like Basinski, where you're, where especially the mythology of, I think it's said that he first listened back to that project as the twin towers were sort of had been attacked he was on the roof of his brooklyn apartment or something and i can't say there's much joy in that it feels like a very mournful project but i feel like for yeah one or tricks point never there is a joy there that i think maybe um it feels like kind of it feels childish in the best sense of the of, of the in the best sense that um there's an argument that francois bonnet makes in his book um 
uh, in the inf- infrasound, no, infraworld, sorry, the infraworld, where he, he argues that um, we often think of children having this, like, excess of imagination. They hear something go bump in the night, and then their, their imagination runs wild. But he says it's the opposite, that actually it's because children don't have that much imagination, that actually this this new experience um, kind of bumps up against the limits of what they have, you know, their, their knowledge so far and exceeds it and that because they can't make sense of it within that sort of the the knowledge of the present it becomes terrifying or even you know there's there's a certain curiosity that comes from that um it's often you know he makes the case that this is a horror especially for like yeah at night time and strange sounds but i think you see the opposite when you see children engaging with technology um i found this video online that has this it was a bunch of news anchors in the u.s and they're sort of ridiculing children who don't know what a walkman is <laughs> and this think? other guy like uh well he's, he sort of says you know my daughter's kind of the other way around she she went on my laptop the other day and started poking at the screen because she spends so much time on her laptop and they all laugh but this kind of this this clip was sort of six years old and i mean the laptop that i write on now is touch sensitive it has a touch sensitive <laughs> screen so there's this sense that you know children's children that they're they they kind of their their a childlike intuition predicts the future despite sort of being restricted to what it knows and I feel like that's the that's the kind of joy that I see in a lot of one hundred six point never stuff that there's there's he's approaching maybe things that culturally are not of his time or his generation or maybe they sort of they they're the things that he sort of watched fade away but instead of approaching them with mourning he approaches them with that kind of sort of strange intuition that makes it into something new. So you think that when we watch the video of Lost But Never Alone, for example, when you have an iPhone uh, at an 80s se- in, placed inside an 80s setting, a 1980s setting, it, it calls us back to being uh, childlike about the iPhone, to a new yeah. enthusiasm, an old enthusiasm, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, but it, I think it also, you know, it, it's it's strange that in sending that, that object back in time it also illuminates as something that's very prescient about the present like it's interesting to see a teenager dressed up like a punk with his sort of um suited parents who seem very well to do in middle class and he's on his iphone um and it's sort of treated as this moral panic as if he's got this new technology um that I guess that we would associate today with being socially connected. Um, he's dressed up as a punk, which I guess also signals a sense of social connection, but one that's feared. And it's interesting that when they sort of, the, the father takes a hammer to that iPhone, but you, but we kind of know that that wouldn't happen today because parents are as addicted to their iPhones as children are. So it, in that sense, it sort of shows how that tension, that productive adolescent cultural tension has kind of been flattened out um and i think it's so in a way i think it shows that that there's a way that we can we can go backwards to um in a way that's not nostalgic i don't think anyone it's not to say that we should be nostalgic for parents and 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 children being completely different worlds though i guess that's probably still true to an extent but there's something else there's another tension that's been lost and i think it's it's kind of fascinating how it it manages to illuminate that tension the other way than we'd expect, as in sending something sort of 
it's 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 kind of like the twist of Back to the Future, I guess, right? That <laughs> you go back in time, and then you have to, but to, you have to get back to the future to make sense of the present. And then, yeah, that whole it starts to melt my mind quite quickly. <laughs> but there's something very subtle going on there, I think, that's really provocative in a way that's quite um, subtle. It's funny because you mentioned the inter intergenerational tension, and I'm thinking that for the, the the first time, this is kind of verified. We have a slogan now, you know, the whole okay boomer thing and everything. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask you this. Uh, you mentioned, you said that uh, one of the exploiting never's work is not simply a pastiche um, earlier in a conversation. And then you also have this blog post where you're calling for uh, less photography and more salvage punk, uh, building on uh, Lost But Never Alone and then Enrico Monacelli's text. Um, so I'm thinking, what is different between a pastiche and a salvage punk? And if I may open the question, what is different between uh, an assemblage, a bricolage, a pastiche and a salvage punk? Mm. Um, I think, and well, I mean, I can, I think I can speak to salvage punk and horn and, uh, and and pastiche. I think these different modes of what counts as uh, different modes of recombination. Um, It's probably it's actually something that I'm trying to map out now, having watched this music video, because um, I think it's yeah, it's not it's not something I've ever really thought of in great depth before, but it's kind of a new yeah interest. But I guess as as far as salvage punk is concerned, um, I think that there's for I think that well, it's it's uh, Mark Fisher has the argument in when he compares the music of the Arctic Monkeys and Burial. And he, I think he makes the the example of the, I think it's the Arctic Monkeys' first single, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor. And the music video for that is filmed with um, uh, clearly like a sort of throwback technology, uh, video recording stuff, maybe like a camcorder. It's very grainy. It could, it, it looks like it, it um A, like a, a, they were on an old episode of the old Grey Whistle Test or something similar, um, but beyond that, it doesn't actually. It doesn't. I guess that's the thing. In 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 the Warren Tricks Point Never example, it challenges this contemporary order of things. When we watch the Arctic Monkeys sort of performing on this old television show, it doesn't remind us that we don't have that kind of show anymore. It kind of it suggests that they are very much at home in that era, that kind of, going back to some sort of mythical golden age. Um, and I think what's built into that is, I think, a golden age is probably the perfect example. I guess it's the same when you look at the someone like Quentin Tarantino, who all of his films, and I can, you know, certainly enjoy them, but, They all hark back to a very. They're all kind of stuck in their moment, where it's it's as if to say that he's carrying a torch forwards for a golden era. This is when things were good, and it's and it's as if to say that you know we have to try and get back to that kind of, um, that that, that kind of moment. Whereas I think salvage punk kind of twists that around, and it's uh, the issue is that it it deals with this predicament that I think we've had. And I think which one of point never actually deals with that it maybe defines the 21st century that sort of follows the sort of um, the third way politics that defined a lot of um, the West uh, 
uh, whether that's you know this sort of liberal centrism that is now our norm um which makes the the sort of diffuse argument that there is no outside to our present condition whether that's capitalism or whatever else there is no outside to this we have capitalism and nothing else and mark fisher obviously famously makes the argument along with a lot of other people that you know is is this an issue of this is on the one hand we have conservatives sort of saying making that argument to herald their own ultimate victory like the end of history uh, as a sort of concept signifies that we have you know capitalism has won out the, the 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 tension that maybe defines the latter half of the 20th century between the Soviet Union and the capitalist West is just you know the the West has won, and then the other side from a more leftist critical maybe Marxist perspective is that that this isn't an issue of any sort of success it's a crisis of imagination, uh, and capitalism has kind of folded in what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism the sense that it's it, there are there are plenty of opportunities to find other ways of living of being of, of operating of, of 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 functioning as a society but capitalism closes them off and and sort of glosses over the inconsistencies Maybe. and i think that oh, sorry no um well i guess that salvage punk in a way is 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 a considers a way out of both that sort of acknowledges that this end of history thing suggests that um well, it, it 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 draws on that hauntological critique from Derrida that even though communism has been defeated globally or supposedly, at least in especially in in Europe, it, the spectre of Marx lingers on. Despite you know, we, we uh, victory doesn't doesn't signify that we can just get rid of the things that have been defeated. Those everything everything lingers on and kind of the you know that that rotten husk never goes away. We have to kind of deal with it. So I think salvage punk in a way considers that as a as a as an as a uh, not as a as a mourning um of of uh, this this spectre this as, as if to be haunted by something but actually suggests that it's not these aren't spectres it's just it's cultural detritus. Mm-hmm. And these things can be picked up and uh, resalvaged because that's that's what we have to do. If there's no outside, we can't start completely afresh um, from nowhere. Nothing. We have to, you know, another, if another world is possible, it has to be built from the kind of rotten husk of this one, the things that have been left behind. You know, it's funny because you mentioned Tarantino as a as a counterexample of what we're talking about. Uh, and I, I was thinking, I mean, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I'm guessing you've seen this, right? Uh, his latest film. I actually haven't seen that one, but that's oh. the one I haven't seen. But it's sorry, no. But I mean, you make your point. I, I mean, I'm familiar with the plot and things. Okay, then I have some bad news to, uh, for you. I'm going to spoil it, both for you okay. and, the, <laughs> and the audience. Um, so yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood. So another one of uh, Tarantino's uh, historically revisionist films. Um, yes. Which go back to a, a past that's over and done with, and imagine different trajectories or different images for how things went. Uh, and I'm thinking, like, I was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? And I've always had this idea that the Manson, fa- the Manson family was uh, was what brought a dark overtone to the 60s, uh, to what was happening after the Summer of Love. It was like a calm down from the Summer of Love, right? Mm. Uh, and now, watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and watching the ending, and that's where the spoiler comes in, where Sharon Tate doesn't die, <laughs> mm. uh, 
it actually brings me to, you know, it, it, for a moment, it makes you feel like you're living in a different present when watching this. I think, and uh, and while doing this, and I'm also thinking about you know Django Unchained, for example, uh, in how the in how it, uh, apart from all criticism that it has received and everything, uh, it actually gives you uh, as a viewer, it gives you very different, uh, a very different view of how slavery worked in the uh, in the people themselves, you know. Yeah. By by seeing a superhero essentially doing all that, and and I'm wondering, I mean, uh, why why is Tarantino uh, the counter example of what you're talking about with Salvat Punk? I think because, um, I mean, Django and Chains is a great example. That I think when you have that, it's it's a tribute, it's a pastiche of you know black exploitation cinema, and I think when you look back at those various examples of those films. Um, uh, whether it's you know other Django films or um, something like Shaft or whatever else, where you have the, the those films weren't um, they were they were very much set in the present. Um, a lot of the sort of especially the sort of seventies cop versions. You have Western versions, and the Western, I guess, is is it's, it's I think it's worth remembering that a, a lot of an original black exploitation westerns weren't necessarily. Um, uh, throwbacks to a, a previous era, because the Western had all the Western was the most produced sort of genre film of the twenty first of the twentieth century. So even though it's harking back to this gold, this this sort of this imaginary landscape within the American imagination, the Western is kind of the the American genre film of the twentieth century. And the Western as a as a the Western stopped being produced uh, in about I think the nineties or, or maybe the eighties when they started demolishing a lot of the old film sets um, that was sort of seen as this huge outcry um, and the Western as this kind of cultural force in America died off. So it's strange to yeah to then think of Django Django and Change because it's it's a film that despite being very polished, I think would have more of an impact if it was released in the seventies, because I guess in that moment it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, well, I mean, yeah, the, the fact that Tarantino is, is white and making that kind of film is, is discussed often, but I think it, it's, it says a lot that, that a lot of the original movies were, you know, the instances of representation on screen for the first time that, black communities hadn't seen themselves in that kind of vengeful role before. They'd always been sort of the, the first, you know, the first one killed, the first person killed in a horror film is always going to be the black person. So I think it's the, you know, it, it carries that sort of cultural power. And the question that I have is what does Tarantino's version of that in the 21st century actually change? Um, you can have the, 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 uh, the, the, his inglorious um, World War II movie. It's interesting and it's fun to look back and imagine another kind of, um, instance of history, another way that history could play out, but I guess because it's, it stops there, it doesn't ask what's what would be different now or what would be different in the future um, if this was, you know, if this if 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 this is what actually happened. And I think with Django Unchained, it's like that. that it, it's a good example because it's not, you know, that's not the issue at hand here. Um, it's 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 never really about what this kind of reimagining does to the present because it's already a present that's in the past if that makes sense 
Mm-hmm. No, it does. Uh, and it actually brings me to my uh, to another question. Uh, you recently had, a, uh, let's say, a beef in a sense. Now I'm going into tabloid journalism to boost ratings. <laughs> uh, but you recently had a beef with, uh, with the people in uh, Mark Fisher memes uh, for hontological teens. Uh, but uh, I, it's not, it, I don't think it's about the people. From what I saw, the problem, your problem was with uh, a very long, both you and Monatelli's uh, take that you quoted uh, from his text, uh, that there is a, a very harmful reading of, um, uh, of Fisher's work. And that and that this is the the, the wrong reading that is being uh, translated into memes and the uh, and its popular uh, let's say expression. Uh, yeah, how I mean, is it I, wrong? I, I think the thing that maybe I should make clear in that is that I think memes are good. <laughs> uh, we should there should be more memes and more memes made around the work of Mark Fisher is brilliant because I think there's I mean a good meme distills an essential idea and pushes it forwards. And I guess that's, as much as I think that's a great medium, there's also this, there's also a strange amount of responsibility that maybe comes with that. And I think maybe I've done a fair amount personally to, sort of inadvertently too, it was never the intention, but um, at least not consciously, but has become this sort of spokesperson for another Mark Fisher that isn't as well known. A Mark Fisher maybe beyond the cliche, I think, as one of the someone another commentator put it. And I'm very happy to sort of put that forwards. But I think it's only because there's a great deal that um I, I mean it's it's this kind of conversation around ontology, I think, is is really fascinating. And this is why I think that one tricks point never is an is a is a is a is really fascinating for me right now in this moment because the, where, I think this is the case for all of Marx's um, famous coinages or neologisms, borrowed or you know original. I mean, I think most of them actually probably are borrowed. Capitalist realism, hauntology, uh, accelerationism. All three of those terms, as three examples, you know, were coined by other people, and then and then Mark would affirm affirm them or 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 uh, or, or find them. another sort of um, yeah he'd he'd he kind of he'd he give a new sort of uh, life to them beyond maybe the moment or the the context in which they were sort of first um, conjured up. Um, and that's you know that's a really important gesture I think for especially for things that are actually critical of of. Um, you know, he in a way it's 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 frustrating that he would do that because now we sort of see a lot of these no pun intended fissures between um, an original sort of coinage and and Marx's kind of affirmative critique that turns it into something else and those two sort of var- variations of a word in, in the case of capitalist realism his definition has won out. And no one really seems to think about capitalist realism as having any other meaning, though it previously did. Uh, sort of like socialist realism or whatever else, it has a lot of these connotations. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, the, for, well, for as, at least as far as hauntology and accelerationism are concerned, we can see that these, both of these terms that signify a very specific kind of critique and want to engender like a positive... Um, uh, a new sort of a, 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 a new kind of political imaginaries. They want to kind of midwife new ways of thinking about the world, but they end up becoming somehow. And I think this is something that a lot of my research is on at the moment. These words end up becoming symbolic of the very things that they are critiquing. So hauntology, especially in the case of this meme group, is kind of a 
a prime example that the memes are great but you kind of go in there and it's often people talking about um uh so, some somewhat cynically somewhat sincerely it kind of depends on i don't know there's, there's varying different probably agendas in there but we see this hollowing out of what these terms actually mean mean rather rather than meme they are hollowed out to make memes you know, and rather I, than that being like a sort of increasing their virality they're kind of hollowed out and made sort of impotent and yeah become become a part of the thing that mark was critiquing in the first place um you know what i I'm think thinking. that's like a yes there, there are two possible problems with, uh, with with your take on this the first one is that the uh, Asking for responsibility might go against the very essence of uh, meme culture. I mean, oh, yes. meme, oh, yes. meme culture is you know on the spot. It's uh, you know it, it doesn't have it's not pre thought out or anything. It's uh, like a very. I think it, it might be actually the most common cultural practice today. Uh, oh yes, the, mo the most common widespread cultural practice today. So asking for responsibility might be a little bit strange in this. Uh, it might be go against its uh, its character. And the second one is you know. Uh, If we're asking for correct readings, of, for the correct reading of uh, Mark Fisher, when we're talking about, you know, a, a vast audience, uh, in a sense, aren't we in the danger of going in, into a little bit of, uh, you know, unorthodox mode of reading uh, Fisher sure. and then not appreciating the plurality? I think that's, yeah, that's the two distinctions that I would make. I guess when I say responsibility, I don't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the last person to think that, The, the internet is capable of being responsible for anything and nor should it be because that's yeah it's it's a wholly contrary to the culture of the thing but i guess what i mean is that there is a well as you say that you know memes are this the, the most engaged with sort of form of cultural production um that so if it's the not that i expect any responsibility to be taken heed of but there's a certain visibility there that can be of great detriment to the thing that people are celebrating um And I guess that, and, and that's the one thing that I would say in, in that uh, I'm not not to say that there should be a um, correct reading. I don't think there's such there is such a thing, um, but at least a productive one. And I guess that's partly what I mean in, in bringing up ontology, accelerationism, capitalist realism. These are sort of phrases that Mark has given new life to. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the 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 unfortunate thing that happens has happened specifically since Mark died in trying to people to try and grasp his thoughts as some sort of cohesive, consist, consistent, singular monolith, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, we start to lose the movement of his thinking, and I think when these terms are hollowed out and made to you know uh, represent. Um, things that were um whether it's a case of them being right or wrong is i guess that's it it's not it's, we're being right or wrong is besides the point but but actually letting those terms stagnate and and making them kind of you know not allowing them to exist further into the present and i guess that's the i make the distinction often between hauntology and hauntography mm -hmm. um and hauntography being you know i think this is a it's a it's a it's a distinction that deleuze makes when he's writing about um The Marquis de Sade and um, Saka Masoch, um, he, he sort of wonders what is it that con what is it that connects sadism and masochism to these two writers, um, and he sort of says that 
it's worth noting that these writers, they're not, despite how their reputations, the writers, the, the writings that they've produced aren't pornographic. Mm-hmm. Because pornography, I guess, as we understand it, would be, you know, it's, 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 it's and a lot of erotic writing is kind of like this. It just describes sexual acts. It sort of just, you know, it, it, it lays them out as kind of these like instruction manuals almost. For it's what stimulating, it but not productive. <laughs> yes, right. So, you know, but, but porno- he sort of says, well, what's pornology? Um, what is it to, how, how can we, you know, what, what's, what, and it's a, you know, it's a question that is, it follows into the 21st century with the, on the internet, right? The, the, the sort of pervasiveness of pornography. What's the diff, what is the, how is this, the, the, the abundance of pornography actually affected what it means, you know, a pornological existence, what it means to, to, to be a sexual being, to have, sexual feelings and then just watch it unfold before you and be described or whatever else. And I guess it's the same thing. The other, another example that's less maybe provocative would be biology and biography. You can read a biography and you read the sort of details of a person's life often after it's been lived and sort of set out chronologically. But a bio biology is the study of how life unfolds of, of the forces that make life, you know, continue. Mm-hmm. So I guess that that's that's why Sevilla is often missing from hauntology. Hauntology is rendered as being hauntographic, where we just sort of start ordering and describing past technologies, past genres, past sort of aesthetic judgments, without actually noting how the presence, the sort of continued presence of those past judgments, affects the present and the future. Because hauntology wasn't isn't about the past; it's about the future. Peanut butter and a candy bar. Is this the future? 
my money is nearly spent Don't have enough to pay the rent You can cancel the future Every day as I go my way I can hear the people as they say This brings me actually actually to the next thing I want to discuss with you, uh, which is in in a sense we can say that hontography is uh, is practically depression, right? In the in the metaphorical sense we're uh, we're talking about, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but I guess even in that sense, there's th- that's another tension within a lot of Mark's writing too, right? That um, he often makes the case that the to, to describe the symptoms of depression, like, and again, this is this is another thing that comes from Deleuze when 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 Deleuze is writing about this ography-ology distinction, he's talking about the distinction between the literary or the critical and the medical and the clinical. So, you know, what, what is it that joins uh, the literary writings of Dessart with the clinical diagnosis or, or or concept of sadism? How how is it that those two things are sort of cross-pollinating and i think depression is kind of another example like what is it how do we 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 very much understand maybe the or or an individual with depression can reel off the symptoms and how they feel but we, we we struggle to think about the how the presence of depression in all of our lives says something you know larger and more structural Mm-hmm. And I think it's that sort of similar thing. It's, you know, what's the difference between individual depression and structural depression? What's the difference between individual nostalgia and structural nostalgia? Mark Fisher, I think, he didn't accept individual depression as a... Uh, he he wasn't really fond of the idea of individual depression, right? Yeah, right. So, well, I mean, there's, you know, it, not to say that it doesn't... Not, I don't think Mark would deny its existence or say that we shouldn't consider it, but I think it's to say that we shouldn't consider individual depression at the extent of you know asking these broader questions mm-hmm. that were for him sort of philosophical questions of how to um this is what he would write about the philosophy of um baruch de spinoza 
um, how to f- not to you know the, for Spinoza writes of how to free yourself from sad passions, but that's not to um, that's to kind of become more attuned to like a holistic sense of the world, to understand nature, not just human nature, but na- or and the nature of God, but to collapse the two together and say, well, you know, what is what is nature naturing? Um, and I think that 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 Mark would sort of draw that quite psychedelic philosophy, I think, for him into kind of the lived experience of the 21st century under capitalism. You, you um, know what, what's strange to me for, for this? I mean, the tension between um, uh, indiv- the, the idea of individual depression and then collective depression, systemic depression, uh, it actually evolves into another tension, which is one of the more, most contradictive uh, uh, points of Marx's work for me. I mean, uh, the, the whole critique of structural depression and uh, structural not only in the sense of uh, the institution and policy in place but on a deeper uh, the, the deeper level of a collective cycle let's say uh, that's uh, as far as it uh, as deep as it extend, extends uh, and then the claim that he brings out of this uh, is for you know uh, the NHS to, to involve more mental health services which, which for me it seems to go against it, it could seem the, to go against the ideas of, uh, let's say, the anti-psychiatry movement of the 70s, from Ardy Lang to SPK. It seems like the, he wants to continue uh, in, the, in this course, that these people were, still had the imagination to think beyond uh, traditional ideas of, uh, uh, of therapy or uh, uh, of, of the psyche. But then uh, this comes back to a very, you know, a very low demand of just, you know, mental health services to be included in the NHS. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's different tensions here, I think, because on the one hand, um, I mean, Mark was often very critical of on the, what, what he called uh, on occasion the therapeutic uh, imaginary, or I guess this sort of, um, this, this, this low-level sense that we have of a, of a kind of folk psychology, in contemporary society where we, we we talk about mental health all the time but in a in in ways that are sort of um predetermined by these kinds of yeah, neoliberal structures the and i think it's right that you know it's, uh, i don't think mark was so, uh, i guess suffice it to say with without getting into too many of the the various arguments that yeah mark was not a fan of how mental health services were run um, in the present, but that's not to say that you know it's that. I guess in part it's this tension with how those issues have been cynically hollowed out by successive governments. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think maybe most infamously there was um, Margaret Thatcher had the policy of care in the community, where which on the surface sounds like the kind of thing that we want to have, where you you rely less on the the state for support and you in, and and so you you encourage um the development of new sort of structures of care and rehabilitation or whatever else within society itself but the problem with that is that you know it's it's um i think foucault makes this point that that's not that's not you know that, that there's a difference between that that we could call maybe socialism and what foucault calls sociological governance and i think for foucault the issue is that um, it, we we have this innate contradiction where so again Thatcher sort of says there's no such thing as society but there are individual men and women and families 
And then you sort of fast forward 20, 30 years and you have David Cameron, another conservative prime minister in the UK, saying that actually, no, we all live in a big society. Uh, society exists, but it's detached, you know, but d- d- society is, but that society is made up of individual men and women and families. And I think that this, this, this strange kind of, um, and I think this this is kind of the neo, neoliberalism as a kind of, kind of derogatory term is sort of thrown around as not being very well defined. But for me, this is what defines neoliberalism, this kind of contradiction between thinking of ourselves collectively as a society whilst emphasizing individualism within that. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to uh, mental mental health anyway, I guess the point is that the argument that's kind of made is that um, mental health services aren't even in the sort of public that they're not run by the state at all at every opportunity the state will jettison mental health care and rehabilitation onto individuals mm-hmm. so i guess there's it's this you you end up with this chicken and egg deferral of any sort of change which isn't just true in this uh, circumstance but i guess pervasively and not just in the uk too right i'm sure that um you know it, w- w- how do we make change do we do we instigate change at the level of government and ta- and force the government to take more responsibility or uh, and then while doing that how do we also sort of divest ourselves of this internalized kind of masochistic performance principle where we have to all take responsibility to, for ourselves how do we you know the, 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 it's like the we know what we need we need more support at this level but we kind of ideologically been trained through these kind of yeah the, the the sort of ideologies of capitalist realism that it's every every man or woman for themselves mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and those two things are in constant contradiction and, and that's what brings me to the next uh, the next question actually that um, you know we describe all these uh, mechanisms uh, at work uh, we we describe a state which intervenes and controls free times and gatherings and <laughs> everything this is these are things that were all there in uh, in post capitalist desire for example uh, as mm. thoughts and, and they hold true but then the the answer to this is uh, acid communism the way it was framed it seems like it's an introverted project in a sense like it's a personal or you know uh, a minor co- uh, a minor project of a small community uh, which could not hold up to you know these uh, against these machines of the state that uh, Mark uh, spent so much time describing. Yeah, I guess again, it's that it's it's a it's sort of a it's that same problem scaled up slightly. Like um, there's so much to be said for an increase in localism at a political level. Um, doing you know as if and I guess it's something that's often affirmed following lots of elections um especially in the last few years i feel like it's become more prominent that the the case is made that, that elections don't solve everything the kind of you have that battle and then in between elections you go back and you fight in your local community and that's the best that any individual can kind of hope for and i guess in a way it's just as much as it it seems counterintuitive i think again it's partly an attempt to find the balance between um the sort of unthinkable scale of these machinations, the, of this global economic system, um, and the the kind of uh, expectations we put upon ourselves from the kind of individualist side of that um, same system. You know, there's a, the capitalism from above 
um, is very different from capitalism from below. But they and, and they both of those issues that they both sort of need dismantling simultaneously, you could argue. But they seem, yeah, entirely disconnected and contrary to each other. And I think that maybe a part of what is often being said, and it's kind of, it's an argument that I think is going mainstream. I actually was watching a, an interview last night, an old interview with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she was making all the same arguments that Marx, Mark would make around that communism um, uh, at the level of sort of social uh, democratic socialism. And Mark was also a democratic socialist, like proudly, um, so I think that it's, but it's again, it's the, it's the, it's as if to say that the, that kind of policy lobbying or, um, uh, oversight committees or whatever else, or, you know, holding various different people to account only goes so far. And I guess that part of acid communism then comes into this sense of, um, how do we hack our own kind of individual consciousness and we hack it in a way that, it can be expanded to include these new scales of, of, of how we can work together because capitalism does that very naturally. And, and so, well, it's, it's supposedly, it seems to think it can do it naturally. Or that's the idea of it that we've been sort of uh, encouraged to believe in that everything can be, you know, let the market do what it wants and it will solve itself out that, you know, that it's clear that that's, um, we, we don't have, we, we sort of seem to have a similar uh, view of communities or um, uh, at what any kind of scale, and none of these things match up and fit together properly. So I guess there's there's partly there's there's the case made for really illuminating the cracks in this sort of consistent capitalist realist vision, and at the same time uh, considering at a local level what can be used to you know make those cracks wider. Mm -hmm. um, Could Jeremy Corbyn be used for that? I mean, it sounds like that for a person who's a democratic socialist, um, I, I would expect that you know something like Corbyn would be you know very important for. And and actually, the biggest, the most well-known implementation of acid communism is the slogan "acid Corbynism," which I know, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not really fond of, right? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> um, but I guess it's. I guess, I guess it's it, 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 it only because it ignores that same tension. Um, to acid corporatism in being this this insistence to um, build up a kind of new collective movement um, that yeah, Corbyn certainly inaugurated. But I think part of the issue with the left, especially now, as Jeremy Corbyn's kind of put through the ringer, is that. The, the left in this country, and I think this is something that Mark foresaw, um, and plenty of other people foresaw, is that as much as Corbyn is representative of a, of a kind of uh, a demographic, demographic shift and an ideological shift at the a level of popular politics, to pin for the left to pin all of its hopes on him was never going to end well. And I think that's kind of what's happened. The, 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 the suggestion that you know, Corbyn's now been, he's just been suspended from the Labour Party, reinstated, but now supposedly without the whip. Um, all, all of the sort of the hopes of a whole generation or multiple generations resting on the shoulders of this one man is kind of, uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it's another limiting of the imagination. Um, I think it's it's similarly, you know, with similar conversations sort of had in the US and elsewhere where, 
I think the, the well, there was the the um, with Biden having supposedly, hopefully, just won the presidential election, but when Bernie lost out on the Democratic nomination it was sort of seen that like well let's just give up and go home now we can't win with this with biden in the house um it's it's sort of it's everything's catastrophized so everything's rested on the shoulders of bernie sanders when he doesn't win it the the, the capitalism as this un, unassailable entity reasserts itself and I think that there's a lot of voices within these parties below the level of leader that actually keep having to make this point that, again, you know, the, the elections don't decide things. It's the movements that kind of um, uh, that, you know, keep keep have to keep churning beyond the the, you know, frequently short lived life cycle of political popularity for individuals. Um and I think Corbyn will always have a very special place in the, the hearts of UK leftists, my own included. <laughs> but I think the question already is, you know, what's next? What what are the steps that can be taken next beyond Corbyn's popularity or or even, you know, his, his not even popular, he's still popular, but his, you know, it being it, beyond Corbyn's position to be able to actually affect change. Since we have, well, you know, what what's next? Always, always asking what's next. Since, since we have just a minute uh, before, just a minute or two before we finish, uh, I'd like to ask you this as a last question: um, the, imagining what, the, what what's next, aren't we in danger of reifying the future like science fiction did in the past, for example? I think that's that brings us back full circle, I suppose, to salvage punk, um, and that was what Mark was interested in with acid communism. Um, I think when people were very surprised when Mark was going back to the politics of the 60s and 70s, as if to say that we just need to go back to that moment. But I think what Mark was trying to illuminate is that that the project that was started then, and which was then, you know, uh, fought off with great, often literal violence, or political nous, um, of a kind of new resurgent left that was both hippies and hard hats, um, you know, the, the working class and students in France, all of these different kind of what we'd now call intersectional, I suppose, these 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 political movements were weren't entirely thwarted. And we have a lot to um, though, but, but they weren't thwarted because there's a lot of the tensions that those movements drew attention to haven't been resolved and they continue into our present. And I think that if you know the, the the salvage punk approach beyond the hauntological doesn't just point to the spectre of the 70s left and 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 and, and look at how it's spookily stalking us in the present sort of to say what can we take from this that is still viable and attached to the tactics and strategies that we're coming up with that are um most relevant to now how can we you know learn learn both from the and this this i guess it's worth making the point this is a precisely delusian point deleuze never believed the new the, the new always emerged from this new this recombination of the whole the new never uh, could emerge wholly you know um independent of the past yeah. yeah so i guess it's it's making that argument productive again and Mark wanted to do that with politics of the 20th century specifically. Look back on those things that have been maligned and ask why have they been maligned? 
and what is it that scared the the the, the establishment about those tactics that made them suppress them so violently and in what way can they be repurposed and used to scare the establishment again into taking a few steps further to the left and continue that movement until we are satisfied <laughs> <laughs> and on that note Matt Cajun thank you for joining us again on the archipelago thanks again for having me pleasure Yeah. <laughs>